I invite you to grab a Bible or get onto a Bible app and get to Ephesians chapter 1. Just an advance heads up warning, I've got a bunch of scriptures here on this slide and we've been using just one slide with the intentionality that you would get to know your actual Bibles more and know where things are. I've given you some little cues there, page number if you're using the Pew Bible. Uh, and, and this also helps twofold. I've been, I've been receiving encouragement from you that you enjoy knowing when I may be about to end the sermon based on um, <laughs> which scriptures I hit. Well, just so that your uh, timing is correct, there are actually two slides of scriptures. I couldn't get them onto one slide today. And I just... Well, I want to be about the ministry of encouragement, not discouragement. So be prepared for that slide to switch when we get to the end of that first list. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, it's a little bit awkward, uh, a little bit painful. Uh, you only get a little bit, but what you do get is uh, refreshing and uh, gets you, hits you right in the face. So maybe that will be this sermon. I promised this was coming. It's, it is inspired by Ephesians chapter 1 and the topics that Paul simply proclaims uh, but does not necessarily flesh out or argue for because so he kind of leaves us in an unsettled place, which Scripture often does. And so I promised that we would maybe dig in a little bit more to these themes or this idea uh, this morning this, that we're actually pretty familiar with, pretty uh, comfortable with already, this idea of paradox and maybe that's more of a modern term. It is from the Greek, paradoxa. And you know, it was probably first used maybe 500 years ago or, or so. A contrary, a contrary opinion. So um, it's come to mean uh, something a little bit different. I put up a definition that I grabbed off the internet, and we know that's probably 100% accurate. Uh, but even the concept of this paradox is a biblical concept. It uses a different word. It uses the word uh, mystery uh, pretty consistently. The mystery of God's will. That's what Paul refers to in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. But even from a young age, this concept is starting to be grappled with. And we had a, a first-hand example of this from our back seat a couple weeks ago as, as Ella, seven, and Freddie, five, are arguing with one another about the paradox of God. And uh, Ella said, could God, cre- could God climb up a tree to the very top and not touch it? And to which Freddie you know, rubs his face a little bit, ponders, and says, Yes, but could God jump into the ocean and not get wet? And then Ella philosophically ponders and says, no. no. (laughs) Maybe we've asked different questions uh, in that paradoxical sense. But paradox, uh, I've said this many times, is merely a placeholder for truth. And one day we'll come to simply grasp it, that this is true. But in the meantime, our finite minds struggle with these kinds of concepts that we see uh, in Scripture about our incredible God. And I will argue that today would be a reminder that the mystery of God should be a vibrant part of our worship. And we just sang that song written by Lauren uh, a few years ago. 
few years ago, uh, just reminding us that that's a cue to praise, a cue to worship. When we come up to the bigness of our God uh, that doesn't fit into the comfortable pieces that we want it to fit into, uh, these truths about God. And in fact, if we are coming to grow in the Lord and to know the depth of His love and understand Him more fully, we, we must not just come to accept or acquiesce to paradox. We must come to worship God because of His paradox, because of the mystery of His will. These things that stretch our minds beyond comprehension, kind of like Freddie and Ella were wrestling with uh, to bring it a little more adult. Uh, we think of the universe, the natural revelation of God on display in the created order. And even atheists will admit the paradox of the universe, that an infinite universe is still expanding. And the statement of, I mean, the stars and the galaxies are getting further apart. So an infinite universe is expanding and remaining infinite. But that's a paradox. We are okay with some forms of paradox and we wrestle. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to pursue a knowledge and understanding. And yet, uh, even in our world, our created order, God has put on display something to remind us of his bigness and his nature that ultimately we cannot fathom. But yet our finite and limited minds want to find an end to things. We want to find the definition, the parameters, uh, likely so that we can get our mind around something and remain in control. If we can grasp it or understand it or define it, we now become the authority over it. And maybe it's the pursuit of our own pride that we could be righter than someone else. We want to tie little bows around it and remain at peace. And yet I would argue that there are many things, in fact, that we want to, our heart longs to be infinite, longs to be limitless. To name a few, mercy, love, faith, joy. So there's a longing built within us all for the limitless, for the more, for the beyond. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon said that God put eternity into the heart of men and women. It's implanted there. And so these concepts that stretch us are already there. And, and so there is a measure of peace that we can have when our mind doesn't catch up to what we already know is embedded within us. Concepts of eternity in uh, God's infinite power. So if paradox is a seemingly absurd, in a modern definition, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true, then we would have to admit that the Bible is full of paradoxes. And though not using that word, but using the word mystery, uh, we will come to see a few. Is it absurd to believe there is one God who is, in fact, three? This concept of the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Though the term Trinity doesn't even show up in Scripture. Repeatedly and consistently, Scripture simply displays and proclaims one God who is triune, is three. So what is one Plus one, plus one. Now, if we're gonna, I mean, if we're going to use math, though, we should, we should use the right branch. 
We should at least jump into metaphysics. What is infinity plus infinity plus infinity? Is it absurd to believe that Jesus was fully man and fully God? Again, Scripture doesn't use the terms that theologians put upon the concept, the hypostatic union, but it simply declares who Jesus was. And Paul, Paul says maybe in the clearest uh, description of this paradox in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following, he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This God who is fully God emptied himself into the form of a servant to become fully man, born of a woman. And then we look at Jesus and His life, and maybe the clearest example of this paradoxical nature, these two statements of Scripture that we must hold in tension regarding His temptation, the temptation of Jesus. In James chapter 1, verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We hold that to be fully true. And yet Jesus, God, was tempted. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted. The other person of the Trinity led the second person of the Trinity to be tempted. Well, how is that even possible if he is fully God? And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reminds us that we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This Jesus who is fully God and God cannot be tempted by, by evil also lived fully man and was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Full humanity, full divinity. And we could spend the rest of our time going through examples to see both. Is it absurd? It fits with the definition of a paradox. We consider Joseph's words. Here's one will be shorter. Joseph's words to his evil brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you... You meant evil against me. I don't know if you know the story, but they, they hated their brother and they ended up wanting to kill him, but he was spared and they instead threw him into a pit and then eventually sold him into slavery and he was eventually sold to the Egyptians. God followed him or went ahead of him and led him out of slavery, out of prison and rose him to the point of right hand of Pharaoh. And we know that story. And so uh, Joseph says at the end of it, when his brothers now come back and are fearful that he will do the same to them, retribution, he says, no, in fact, I'm showing grace and mercy because what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's, a, that's a, an absurdity as we start to wrestle with that concept. And don't, don't go too far down there, but it is a mystery, it's a paradox. Is it absurd to believe that God wrote the Scriptures? Perfect, pure, holy, 
while using sinful, imperfect men and potentially women. We don't know all of the authors of Scripture who, who didn't even know that they were writing Scripture for the most part. Second Peter 1.20 and following, Peter says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Were they aware even of their being carried along? I think some authors had a, a greater awareness or understanding of God speaking through them, perhaps some of the prophets bringing that message to all Israel. But I would argue also they never imagined how it would be preserved throughout history as God's standard and his word. By now, I know I, by just the expressions on your face, some of you are leaning in and just eating this up. You love this thought and this concept. Others are already checking their phone and their watch and wondering how warm it is outside and thinking about, do they actually need to mow their lawn for the first time today? I am with you. And so, let's continue. Two weeks ago, we looked at a paradox in Ephesians 3 as Paul is pouring out his heart and praying for the Ephesians. You remember this one? He said, I pray that you would know God's love. It's like the heartbeat of his message. That you would know God's love. And in the next statement he says, which surpasses knowledge. And so we laughed and we, we, we were okay with this one. And in fact, he went on to say that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I use this picture as if he was saying, take this thimble and fill it with the ocean. That's, that's equivalent to about what he's saying. In fact, that, that would be too small of a picture. That you, that me, that would be, you would be filled to all the fullness of God. And so we, and we laughed and we chuckled and we received this as paradox or as mystery. And how is it, so here I've been leading us up to uh, this paradox which we're about to enter into because it seems that we've come to hold, in fact, to worship God for these mysteries, the Trinity, the humanity and divinity of Jesus, the perfect word of God written by imperfect people, uh, the concept that God can be sovereign over and ordain and work with all things so that nothing surprises him, that nothing is out of his will, yet men can still choose evil. No, we, as we come to know God, we have to come to at least admit that those paradoxes are there and they're just declared in Scripture. Uh, they're not necessarily argued for at the level that we might want to argue and wrestle, and, and so we take it there. How is it then that we can struggle so much when it comes to the mystery of God's sovereignty related to salvation, the saving of people and their souls? These concepts, these themes that we started touching on last week, of the, the biblical words of election, predestination, foreknowledge, that all fall under the banner of God's sovereignty. And yet, as we even sang about, and Scripture clearly proclaims, man's responsibility, the faith that we are called to exercise, to trust God, to follow Him, to obey Him. How do we reconcile those? They've, they've divided people, churches, denominations, seminaries. So with caution, we walk into a, 
this concept a little bit more. It's been said, it has been said about some other things too, but it has been said about election. Try to explain election and you may lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. Pastor Warren Wearsby, pretty, pretty popular commentator also, he said, he wrote this. He said, the mystery of divine sovereignty and man's responsibility will never be solved in this life. And then he goes on to write like two chapters on the topic. So I'm encouraged by him to continue to go forward, recognizing that this leads us uh, to a place of tension and maybe agitation, but it does not leave us there. We respond ultimately with worship and praise. That's where I want to lead us. The paradox of God, the great mystery of God, really captures all of this. Everything that I've been saying the mysteries of God. Paul says in Romans 11, verse 33 and 34, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? You hear that even right in that same, those two verses. The depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. Paul proclaiming God is knowable and yet unknowable beyond us, greater than. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are more holy than ours. And Paul proclaims this same paradox in Ephesians chapter 1, where we were launching off from, that God is both knowable and mysterious. Verse 9, chapter 1. God has made known the mystery of His will. That very statement is paradoxical. God has made known the mystery of His will. In chapter 3, Paul will say he's, he had kept back, he had hidden the, his, the mystery of the gospel. In ages past it was hidden, now it has been fully made known in Jesus. And yet there's so much more that we want to know, isn't there? And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul teaches that we are both chosen and predestined. And we looked at that last week. But then in verse 12 and following, Paul speaks of the importance, the essential nature of placing our hope into Christ, believing in Jesus, and exercising faith in the Lord. So even in the same chapter, he speaks of both. And if you remember, verse 3 to 14 are basically one sentence in the Greek. If you've got your Bible open, you're looking at that chapter, and it's, um, it's a couple paragraphs long maybe in your Bible, that is one sentence in the original Greek. So election and faith belong in the same sentence. Yes, And you say, well, so then, does our salvation depend on God or on our faith? Yes. Yes and amen. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he paused and just like my son Freddie did, you know, rubs his face, ponders and says, there's no need to reconcile two friends. You could also say of this, this is not our problem, this is God's problem, and for God it's not a problem. 
So as we come to know God and we admit that there are paradoxes uh, to who He is, mysteries to who He is, and it's not, it's not wrong to be agitated, but we don't remain there. We come to a place where we can worship God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength for His mysterious wisdom and will. The depth of His love, it is beyond our comprehension, and yet it is knowable. And we worship Him for that. And it's too often, I think, that our over-educated minds want to find the parameters and definitions and build up those walls rather than come to a place of worship. But I am not arguing that we come to a place where we simply acquiesce. We reluctantly agree. Well, God's God, I'm not. That doesn't engage our minds that we are called to engage, our heart, soul, and strength. We should not simply shrug when it comes to the doctrines and the majesty of our God. So I'm not advocating something in between. I'm advocating worship. Worship is not passive, nor can it be demanding. So praise God that He is this big, that He is holy, that He is good, and that He is mysterious. I don't want a God that I can fully get my mind around. Do you? How finite and weak is that God? We worship God because He is beyond and greater than anything we can comprehend. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But we are also called to be stewards of these secrets. How do you like that? To be communicators, to be ambassadors, to share these secrets that we, we ourselves cannot even know. Is this some kind of cosmic joke? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Now the us here is uh, other apostles as well as leaders of the church writing to a local church, giving instruction from the Lord, we also know this too then becomes our call, the kingdom of priests, all who are his apostles, which simply means sent ones, his missionaries who go to make him known, his evangelists who are called to proclaim the truths of God. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so too would you be. Stewards of these mysteries that Paul is seeking to make known, though even himself admitting how great they are. Let me press a little further. I would argue that these doctrines, if we're going to, make, if we're going to bring them to, out of our mind to our heart, they must fit in the context of God's love. It's exactly what we've been seeing so clearly proclaimed by Paul as the centerpiece of this letter they only make sense, actually, in the context of God's love, His election, His choosing, His predestining, if you will. And I know the, the one that would argue the other side and say, well, if those things are true, that means that God chose some and not others, which seems certainly evident. Then how could that possibly be loving? And that argument will not be settled today. And yet I would say there is a strong argument against it. That in fact, 
if not for the doctrine of election, of God's choosing, of his predestining, then there is actually no hope for any who have never heard the name Jesus, who have never ultimately responded to him in faith. If God simply put things in motion, redeemed through Jesus and sat to wait, and God does wait, the picture is very clear. Jesus wrote that or spoke that in a parable of God the Father waiting for his prodigal son. That's not the only way that God interacts with his wayward sons and daughters. Jesus also taught a parable about leave the 99 and go find and rescue because Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. So we see both in God. God did not simply only put things into motion and sit back to wait, hoping that men and women, his sons and daughters, would eventually return to him, respond to him, and choose him. In fact, that would be less loving, I would argue, that those who have never heard the name Jesus or the millions who are aborted or unborn or those with severe cognitive challenges that from any of our perspective would have no ability to understand the gospel and respond to it. That God can, hear this church, that God can and does save whomever He wills for His glory and to display His love and mercy and goodness, that is a truth that I cling to. He is mighty to save. And for those that find themselves in the darkness of depression or despair or oppression and believe there's no other way out except to remove themselves from this world, I cling to this promise that there is a God who is mighty to save, who has created souls for Himself and can cling any one of them in an instant, in a moment, though they know nothing of him. The Bible clearly proclaims the truth of God's sovereignty, his election, his predestination, and and even more consistently and emphatically, it declares his love. We hold both of these up. And for now, they are but mysteries and paradox. But let me, let me remind you some of the declarations of God's love for all peoples. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Paul would write to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, even for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So pray for your neighbors, your co-workers, your boss, your colleagues,
congressmen and women, your senators, your governor, your mayor, your president, none are beyond the reach of a God our Savior, nor his desire to see them come to know him. And next week, the story that we'll hear from Casey Flagg will be a powerful reminder of that very truth. And maybe that's your story as well. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The, the Bible, the Word, simply declares God's love emphatically for all peoples and that He does elect predestined and choose. How then do we reconcile? We cannot. We worship. And for any in a place saying, I don't know if I am one of those chosen that you speak of and you become bristly. Well, take your bristliness to God. And as you do, as you bring that all to God and you come to Him, come to Him, and know that you are one of His. He will remind you and declare that and show you that you have been on His heart and mind since before the foundation of the world. As you come to Him, even today, there's a reason we have communion every week. There's a number of reasons. But there's a reason we don't pass it. There's a couple of reasons for that too. But one of the main ones is that you would have an opportunity to move physically toward something today. We know God isn't more present here, but it is a powerful symbol introduced by Jesus and a reminder of what he has done and the ability to move towards him in a physical way as we seek to do so spiritually is a good and right thing. So even as you come today, Recognize that as you come, He is the one who is and always has drawn you. And we praise Him. And we worship Him. That's the right response. In fact, two things. We respond in both praise and proclamation. We've already been doing that. Singing of His greatness through praise. So we praise you, Jesus. This is essentially, this is begins and ends and centers the whole passage of Ephesians chapter 1. I mentioned it last week. Verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father. Verse 6 says, To the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12 says, To the praise of His glory. And it ends with verse 14. To the praise of His glory. Speaking of His salvation, of His grace, of the mystery of His will. To the praise, to the praise, to the praise, to the praise of His glory. And so it's right to respond with worship. But before we just do that here and then we continue to praise Him throughout the week for His mystery, for His bigness, for His mercy, we also are reminded that this truth leads us to proclaim. Not, not the other way around. It doesn't, it doesn't, we don't come to the truth of God's choosing and sovereignty and His election and say, well then, why does it matter what I do in life, whether I even proclaim who this God is. Why would I be a, a, a servant, a steward of these mysteries if it makes no difference? God is God and will save who he will. Case in point, we have Paul. 
Paul is the clearest theologian on these topics of anyone in Scripture, though they are seen as we've begun to see throughout Scripture. Paul articulates them very clearly. But I hold up to you his life. Is this a man who believes that there's no real point in evangelizing, in proclaiming who God is? In fact, the very opposite is true. The one who may believe these truths more than any one of us in this room is one who responded to them with proclamation of the gospel with greater urgency than anyone in this room. In Acts 18, verse 9, Luke writes this record of, of the Lord speaking to Paul one night in a vision. You may remember this. We have went through this not too long ago. And he said, the Lord said to, to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. This is in Corinth. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And what God is saying is, I've already chosen many in this city who are mine. They don't know it yet. So go and make it known. For Paul, that was a guarantee of the effectiveness of proclaiming the gospel. Take this fishing pole you will catch a fish. In fact, you'll fill up your bag. You'll fill it to the full. Paul would later write back to this same city, a passage that probably many of you know, uh, his motivation for proclaiming who God is. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, parentheses, though I myself am not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as an outsider to the law, not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Does that sound like a man who has responded to the truths of God's sovereignty with passivity, without responsibility. Romans 8, verse 11, which I'm not, or chapter 8 through chapter 11 are probably the clearest articulation and yet leave a million and one more questions for us. But Paul wrote that section of Scripture, Romans 8 through 11. There's your homework assignment if you have yet to study or it's been a while since you've dug into these themes. And yet in the middle of that discourse, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. True. Do we do so today, Lord? We call upon your name. And either receive your salvation or reminded of it. But Paul goes on and says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The doctrines of predestination and election and God's sovereignty don't dismiss us from evangelism, from proclamation. They inspire it. They did for Paul. And that's my best effort to bring these themes to you, church, and hold up the bigness of God, the mercy of God, the might of God, the grace of God, the love of God, 
and the response that each one of us has to these truths, both to praise and then to make Him known. If the purpose of all of life is salvation, and salvation belongs to the Lord, then it makes sense why we, the church, have let off the gas pedal on evangelism. And yet, if the purpose of all of life is to know God and to know Jesus and to know the Holy Spirit, then the response of evangelism, as we have been commissioned to make Him known, the response with urgency makes sense. An urgency that Paul had. Because we're not only trying to see people snatched from the depths of hell at the final moment to find eternity in heaven. We are to proclaim that the knowledge of God and a living relationship with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit is what life now and for eternity is all about. And people are missing it. And so we go and proclaim, as Paul does, also holding as stewards the mysteries of His will. Praise God that we are coming to know Jesus. And as we do, as we respond today with praise, as we walk out these doors into the fields that God has planted us in in the week ahead to be His stewards, to be His ambassadors, to make Him known, to be salt, to be light, Praise God that all of this is because of His initiative, His drawing, His grace, His pursuit of us. And though we sense our response, we sense our faith, we sense our trust, we know He is before, in, and through all things. And Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me end with his prayer from chapter 1 that has become like a mantra and will continue to be. I'll invite the team. Team, you can come and be prepared to lead us in response. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And since that is beyond us, the knowledge of the true depth and mystery of God, he says that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that the very center of your being would come to know him, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, that you may know riches and power that are immeasurable. Let's end with that paradox. That it is possible to come to know the riches and the power of God that are already ours in Christ, though they are immeasurable. And so we worship. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You. Just as Paul began this long run-on sentence, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
We praise you and we long to know you. Thank you for stretching us, for growing us, for even disturbing and agitating within us where we have been passive, where we have been asleep. Wake us up, Lord. Wake us up to the truth of who you are. Wake us up to your love for all peoples to know you and that none are beyond your reach, your eyes, or your heart. And may it be true as we interact in this world that you've planted us into, that we would see people as you do, that we would be stewards of the great mysteries of your will, that we would be as Scripture is. We'd proclaim truth and not need to argue or defend who you are, but proclaim your love, grace, and mercy that is limitless. We want a taste of that this morning. And so we respond as we come to the table, as we sing praises, or as we allow our heart to swell within us, or even break within us and come to repentance. We give you our life. We give our life back to the one who has given us breath. All for your glory and your goodness and your name. Jesus, we pray. Amen.